Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Hannah Vidin, author of the book The Word Horde, Daily Life in Old English. Hannah, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um, I I am a medievalist that specializes in Old English. I did a, a PhD in Old English at King's College London. Um, after finishing my PhD, I got interested in writing this book. Um, and I've been tweeting an Old English word of the day for eight over eight years now. And that has an accompanying blog, and um, and I write Patreon blog posts. So that's sort of what I've been doing recently. If a, a listener wanted to uh, follow that, where, where could they look you up? Uh, you can go to oldenglishwordhoard.com, word hoard spelled W-O-R-D-H-O-R-D, uh, or you can go to at O-E word hoard um, on Twitter and follow there. So what led you to go from using modern media to present Old English to writing a book about it? And what's different between what you do in terms of your uh, your Twitter feed and your, and your webpage versus what you're doing in the book? Yeah, well, I started the Twitter feed sort of as a way to get more public engagement with the work that I was doing at the university. So sort of bringing Old English to the attention of more people so people would know what it is and be able to enjoy it. So I I had been doing that for a while. um, And that was just a word of the day. I got the idea of writing slightly longer, like blog posts about different words that I tweeted about each week. So um, I would I would choose one word and and write a bit about its context or its etymology, and I'd share those once a week, and that sort of led to the idea of what if I sort of turned all of these different words that I'm interested in to a into a so full book of sort of a, a treasury of different words that I love about Old English and what those words can tell about people living in that time period. That's the part of your book I thought was most fascinating is that you're not just talking about the words themselves and getting in, into uh, you know their their development. You're also talking about what they say about the times in which people lived, and I thought that was a, a really fascinating window into their lives. Yeah, that's one. That's one of the things that I really love about studying this language is finding out that there are words for things that that just don't really translate well into modern English. And the reason being that it's a different world and um, that the words that were needed at the time were not necessarily the same as the words that we need now. So um, I think we often think about uh, English as gaining a lot of words over time, like the dictionary becoming longer and longer as more new concepts and ideas arise but there are also a lot of words that are sort of unique to this earlier time period that we don't use anymore. So I like looking at both of those. I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by explaining what exactly is Old English in terms of, you know, it's the the language where it it comes from and, and how does it differ from modern English, because in your book, you begin, and I, I loved your approach, which was to, to walk backwards through the language, to talk about uh, modern English, going back to, to what we might you know, call you know, Middle English, and then going back to Old English. And, and, and you, you expressed the differences, but I was wondering, you know, how different is Old English really from modern English we use today? Yeah, it's, in some ways, it can be fairly recognizable. For instance, if I say the sentence, Hana is mean nama, it doesn't sound that far off from Hana is my name, though it's pretty similar in the, the words and, and the 
syntax. But if you look at poetry, especially in Old English, you'll find it sounds a lot different. For instance, the first few lines of Beowulf are Huatwe gardena inyer dagum, which doesn't really sound like anything to modern English speakers. Um, part of that is that not only are the are, are the words have the words changed over time, and um, they've been influenced by more Romance languages later on. Uh, part of it is that meaning is determined by inflection, so the word endings rather than syntax, which is the word order. Or word order. Um, so the the order of the words in the sentences are quite strange to modern English speakers. I was wondering if you could talk a bit also about how it is that we have Old English. So because you, you mentioned Beowulf, it, are, is the only are the only examples of Old English that we have left the words that exist in, say, uh, poetry and literary works? No, there's a variety of different genres. Um, I think the ones that generally get the most attention are the more literary ones. So Beowulf is is definitely the most famous piece of Old English literature. But we also have many other kinds of um, texts, like we have medical texts describing different remedies for um, for ailments, and we have homilies, uh, we have sort of versions of religious texts, um, biblical stories, uh, there's saints' lives, there's prognostics, so sort of uh, works that are talking about prediction, how to make predictions about the future. So there's all kinds of different uh, texts out there that we get this vocabulary from. So, and a lot of that vocabulary is about the everyday. And that's one of the things I really you, you thought was fascinating about it was, was how, you know, we, we think of the everyday as, as mundane. And yet you show how, because we have that, the portrait we get of life that, that it opens up for the way that you open it up, you know, gives us that insight into every day that we sometimes lose when the focus is upon, say, uh, you know, royal proclamations and, and you know, the works of the Venerable Bede and so forth. Uh, and, and, and where you first begin that exploration is with the examination of, of food and drink. I was wondering if you could perhaps, you know, talk, you know, share some of the, the, the words of, 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 of the foods and, and the beverages that they, uh, used in old english and also what that says about uh what they consumed back then and 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 and, you know essentially what wasn't there uh at that time sure uh yeah there's i mean there are some words that are quite similar to words that we have today like uh chlaf is the word for bread but it's it we have we still have the word loaf which is similar and there's like chusa which is cheese there's milk which is milk and honey which is honey so there's some that are quite similar um there are words that we have in modern english that you might not necessarily realize are related to food for instance uh the word lord and lady the words lord and lady actually come from hlafwerd and hlafdia which mean bread protector and bread maker. So there's some interesting connections to the the Old English there. Um, Yeah, and then there's some words that are a bit more mysterious that we don't know what they are exactly. Like um, there's a reference to Morgendrench, which is morning drink, but what exactly is the morning drink? we, we're, we're not entirely sure. So, yeah. You make it clear that, whole... unfortunately, it's not coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, I really feel like it should be. But uh, since it's in a, it's a medical remedy, and it seems like that would be a good one. But yeah, <laughs> probably not. Uh, I, I was thinking it, it might be hair of the dog, but what, yeah. what I was actually thinking about was was, was how it, it was fascinating how certain things in the language that 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 repeat 
with what we do today. I was, I was thinking how we use that phrase loaf of bread and the way you explain how the, the, the old English word was basically bread. It, it, it strikes me that when we talk about loaf of bread, mm. it, it can, someone who, who is a, an old English speaker must sound equivalent to saying pizza pie <laughs> in the sense you're basically repeating the same word in two languages. That's true. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, there are, there's also the fact that uh, there is the word bread in Old English, which is spelled the same as bread, so B-R-E-A-D, um, which is actually, it just means food. It doesn't mean bread specifically. So that's an example of semantic narrowing, where over time, this word that meant something more general has come to mean something specific. The same thing happens with the word mete, which is what you would think would be meat, but um, back in the early medieval period, mete was just food. It wasn't specifically animal flesh like meat is now. You also, uh, in your book, uh, another subject you discuss in your book is how people express time. And, and, and this is something where you, you come at it both in terms of how they thought about, you know, how they express your words for the, the, the passage of time, but also your concepts of the calendar. I was wondering if you explain uh, some of the words that, that they had and, 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 and how they differ from how we express time today. Yeah, sure. Um, well, one of the things that is important to remember when you're thinking about time in the early medieval period is that it was not nearly as precise as we think of time as, I mean, we think of time down to the minutes and the seconds. Um, and there wasn't really even a word for hour. It was more just a general sort of time period. So you'd have the time when, you know, the sun comes up, the time when the sun is at its height, sort of the time that's in between that time. Um, but you wouldn't have, say, 3.30 p.m., like terms like that. Um, so the time was also much more significant to people who were part of religious orders, so monks and nuns who had to follow a set, um, a set schedule of, of prayers every day. Um, to lay people, they probably would just need to be aware of when the sun was going up and when, like, sort of when they were going to be able to do their work, which was mainly outdoors. So, yeah, it's um, it, it, it's so much more tied to the activity. So you have, yeah. for example, you know, uh, you know, sun time. Uh, you, you, you know, uh, I, I, another one that stood out for me was. was uh, the the time of battle or war it, it's much more tied to when they're doing an activity and not necessarily to that, that particular point in the day which they didn't really have good good ways of measuring back then yeah yeah it's true um when you come across time words they're often more about like the time of i don't know i guess more poetic ways of talking about time like the time of time of battle time of leisure time of suffering various times, but not you, you don't come across um, specific times of day as much. Sometimes you get um, things like the third hour of the day, but it's the, their idea of an hour is not as precise as our 60 minutes. Um, so, yeah. Uh, uh, you also uh, talk about how the you know, use language in terms of things such as education and work. And there's another area where it's very different from what we have today. I, I was wondering if, if you could talk a bit about the what the words that they used back then say about the, their preoccupations, how they spent the bulk of their days, how they thought about work and how they thought about, uh, uh, you know, learning at the time. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm just trying to think about what, like what, what kind of words do you mean specifically? Like well, I was thinking, in, uh, for example, uh, of, of words like, uh, you know, uh, there's the one that I kind of was fascinated by was, was the notion of like, and I, I'm not, I'm going to mispronounce it in Old English. So I'm just going to give you the, the gross approximation of yeah. man dream, the, uh, the human joy. Yes. And I, 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 was, I was fascinated by it in, in the sense of it as a, you know, how it, I, I just kind of puzzled over it because of, 
you know, this notion of how they, they subdivide this notion of, of, of enjoyment mm. into in, in various categories in, in a way that we have to do in a more complex way with modern English, it seems to me. Yeah, it's true. They have a different, um, there's certainly a lot of words that are related to to dream, so that's joy, or wun, which is also joy. Um, and yeah, I think it's it often has to do with um, it, not so much, it's not, it doesn't seem to have as much to do with whatever activity you're doing. Like maybe you, today we, we, I don't know, play a sport or read a book or something and that that brings us joy but it has more to do with um like sort of connections close connections to different things so um mandrayam is human joy um that is sort of a joy that's having a the joy that you get from being connected to other people other other human beings sort of being part of a group um then you have um, you know, more spiritual types of joy that is that demonstrate a connection to God, um, that sort of thing. If that, I don't, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it, it, it does because I mean that we we can express that with our language, but we don't have a specific word. For, we, we, we haven't constructed unique words. We talk about, we, we, we start with joy and then we explain what we're joyful about. Whereas mm. they had a specific word for the types of joy. And I thought that was interesting how that, how the language had changed since that time in that respect. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, but you, another area, which I, I thought was really fascinating was, was the notion of, and I love the way you started this chapter about how they didn't have enemies in those days. <laughs> it's such a wonderful way of, 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 of just simply explaining the fact that they didn't have a word for enemies and how you have this word. And I, you know, I must confess, given my own interest, I, I was struck by the notion of, uh, of the unfriend <laughs> as being something that, that I would more immediately associate with a Newspeak dictionary out of Orwell than yeah. uh, something with, with Old English. Yeah, it's it's funny. It seems like it, it would be a useful thing, a useful word to have. Um, I, I think it's quite interesting how the, the words friend and enemy used to be excuse me, used to be so similar. Like, I mean, freyond and feyond, say, sound very very similar but one stuck around in the form of friend and the other became fiend and fiend now <laughs> means more like a devil or something like that than a you know someone that you don't like so <laughs> I, I was also thinking though about what that might say about the psychology though we, i mean we're if, if if old england if, if the england at that time is is a smaller place you know you have fewer people around communities are more tightly knit could you really afford to make enemies mm. i mean you, you could definitely have friends and unfriends and, and maybe people who we would think of as fiends but could you did you really want to have people in the community who are, who are permanently set against you in the way we think of enemies today yeah it's definitely a a, a much bigger risk uh, there's there's references in um like there's a reference in a law code of a particular trial that you do if you're winnelaus which means uh winna is friend it could also mean sort of like a close kinsman or something like that um and if you're winnelaus you don't have anyone to sort of stand up for you if you're accused of a crime um no one to take sort of an oath that you're a good person and um it's quite it's quite a dangerous thing to be on your own like that. And there's also um, old English maxims that talk about, you know, people who's, who don't have any friends, but wolves, and then they're really in trouble because wolves are, wolves are not good friends in old English. I don't think they are in modern English either generally, but yeah. Um, friend, <laughs> friendship and fitting into your community was very important just for survival. It, it, so what you have there is we have sort of how they thought about friends and, and, and another area that I thought you did, uh, it was really fascinating to see how they thought about their, their lives was with your chapter on health mm. and how, again, we, we saw, and, and, and this gets to how, you know, it, it, I, I, I used Norwelly reference and that was probably a, a, a little unkind because it was how they constructed it, but you know, the, about how for them it, it wasn't, it, it was, they, they had a word for health and, and then the opposite was simply unhealth. 
I was wondering if you could perhaps explain, uh, you know, how they conceptualized health as is evident in those words in a, in a different way than we do today. Yeah, it it's funny because when we talk about health today, it's generally we're we're more focused on the opposite of what it is to be healthy. When we're talking about health concerns, we're usually talking about I don't know illnesses and and um, various maladies that you need to treat to make someone healthy again. And in old English, we have health and we have unhealth and health is the state of being sort of whole and sound and not like sound in body and mind and unhealth is anything that isn't that. So um, in a way you're there, there the thing to be concerned about is not health, but unhealth. And they had so many words to d describe aspects of that. I, I was thinking, for example, about how you had these words for uh, blood, and and how they they it, it's an it's an example of, of uh, kind of what we were talking what you were talking about a, a few minutes ago with with uh, joy, which is that they have very specific terms for for different conditions, some of which are are only tangentially related to blood. I was thinking, for example, about how uh, again I apologize if I mispronounces SWAT mm, and, yeah, and about how that's. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, about how it's, you know, we, we, it, how it means blood, it, 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 as you described it in poetry, but it, it also, but it actually refers to other uh, bodily, uh, you know, uh, discharges such as uh, sweat or perspiration. Yeah. Um, blood is actually, I actually did my PhD dissertation on on blood in Old English, so I'm fascinated by blood words. <laughs> I spent a lot of time looking at them. But yeah, I, I, I just love when you get to these texts that have multiple words for blood, like blood, swat, dreor, sawadreor, however, and you're going through them all and you're trying to make a modern English translation and you quickly run out of synonyms. I mean, you have blood and you have gore and then you sort of run out of different ways to translate blood. Um, <laughs> I think that shows how rich the language is. Um, but yeah, blood was the word that was kind of used universally at, for blood. So it appears in medical texts and, and homilies and poetry, whereas the other blood words are just po are just poetic. Um, the, they're, they're only found in poetry, except for swat, which um, you mentioned, and that that in non-poetic contexts means sweat. So it's very, it's very much like our word sweat. Uh, so perspiration, but it could also refer to the juice of a plant. So it appears in, in medical books and um, it could mean that, but yeah, in poetry, it always refers to, to blood and, and it's sort of, it, it can also be referred to as battle sweat in a way. Um, so it's the kind of perspiration you have when you're in a fight, um, which is an interesting image. <laughs> I think it also gets to, you, you can see in a way how they might have conceptualized the notion of what a body produces. I mean, mm. yes, blood is distinctly different from sweat, but at the same time, I mean, how different is it? And, and, and how do they not know that it's, that it's two different things, perhaps, instead of maybe being two different expressions of the same thing? So why not use the same word for both? Just, you know, you know alter it slightly in a way so as to recognize the distinction, but while at the same time saying that maybe it's not that all that different. Yeah, or maybe in the context of poetry, for instance, that it doesn't matter that it's there's a bit of I mean, maybe that maybe that's a bit intentional in making it um not as clear about what exactly it means. Like there are other words that have um like in Old English, there's a word brain, which means brain. Um, it's very similar to our word for brain, but you never see it in poetry. You only see it in medical books. Um, in poetry, you see words that are much more sort of hard to define, like mod and seva um, and hygge. And all of these words sort of mean heart, mind, spirit. And it's hard to say exactly which of those things it is. I think 
we think of heart and mind and spirit as three distinct things. But in these poetic contexts, they overlap a lot more in Old English. That, that idea of there being multiple words for the same thing is not, you know, common to English speakers today, but it's one that I, I was curious about in terms of what it might reveal about their thinking about something. And, and here I'm thinking in, in your next chapter, when you're talking about, uh, you know, their, their, their local environment. And I was thinking about how they have two different words for the sun. And one of them is very familiar to us today. It's basically the same word we use. But you also had this second word, uh, seagull. I, I, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, seal. It's a seal. So- soft, soft G, yeah. Seal. And, and, and I'm, I'm wondering why... Ha- uh, you said it's, it's 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 a you know one that you see uh, it, it also stands for a particular rune. I was wondering why would they use different words like that, and and what might uh, the the fact that we don't have like seal as a synonym for sun anymore say about how the language changes? You know, like was it, it the infrequency of the reason why we abandoned it? Did we just uh, was it was it reflection of 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 the exposure of old English to to subsequent influences to where certain elements dropped out? What was going on there? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure exactly what happened with sale. I, I'd have to look into that more, but my guess would be that it it came from sort of older um Germanic language um and that Sana, which is the one that we're more familiar with, came from um influence the influence of um of of Latin perhaps, um, but I'm not sure actually because yeah, Latin is soul. So yeah, I don't know actually. That's a good question. I'm not sure what happened to Seal. <laughs> but because I, 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 I was I was struck by how you you you, you tied it to the rune. Yeah. And 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 how and uh, that linkage there. The, the the other aspect about the 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 part about the sun that I found was was the the familiarity with how they used sun and tied it to things. So you have uh, you know, sun beautiful, sun hot, and, and how we phrase it the same way. And, and whereas they had different words, they're doing more of that combination of words that that we tend to be use more frequently in English today. Yeah, the sun is is very much associated with beauty in Old English, and I, I mean, I like to think that. Well, when I I lived in the UK for for you know several years, and I really appreciated the sunny days when I got them. (laughs) So in a way that, I don't know, even now, um, I live in Canada now, and I have sunny days much more frequently, but I still appreciate them more having lived in the UK, I think. Um, There's really just, I imagine that, and it would, I mean, for me, it's just, oh, it's a sunny day. I like to be outside and enjoy the warmth, but um, back then, it would be even more important for, I mean, a farmer to be thinking about the sun and, you know, whether they were going to have enough food to eat during the year. So I, I, I definitely see why that would be such a significant, um, a significant word to use in describing beautiful things. Um, you get a lot of that. Um, uh, the, beauty is also often talked about in terms of of brightness and light as well. So you get um, words that are like "litebert," uh, which is uh, like beauty bright, um, which is interesting. As I don't think we, I mean, we talk about beautiful things, I guess, as being shining or radiant, um, but we don't have those compounds with the word beauty anymore. Uh, something else that I liked in that chapter was how you take their expressions about nature and you tie them towards larger concepts. And I was thinking here in particular about what you do with the, a word like uh, like the word for paradise, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce <laughs> because I know I'm going to get it wrong. And uh, also about how they they talk about the notion of evil and how they again, and this is something that you know, you know, 
it is very familiar to, to people you know familiar with judeo-christianity in terms of the notion of of of, of tree and and its role in it but how they have it, 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 this this wonderfully sinister name which uh again i'm not going to try to pronounce but i, I thought it's fascinating about how you, you you know through through these mundane everyday words that that was how they constructed their their concepts of 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 you know evil and and and, and paradise as well yeah so i guess you're talking about the word nerksnawang yeah yes yeah nerksnawang yeah it's it's a very strange word um that i i talk about in the book and i basically present a lot of different theories about why people think that Nerksdawang means paradise, but there's nothing that's very conclusive. Uh, it's a bit of a mystery. Uh, Wang means plain, uh, like a, a field or a plain, but yeah, it's not entirely certain what Nerksna is. Um, and it's very strange to have the letter X in Old English anyway. So it's a, it's a bizarre word. But yeah, the way Nerksnawang is depicted in Old English poetry is um, as a place where there's no change. Um, there's sort of everything is just always perfect weather. And like there's no storms. There's no rain there's no harsh winds like everything is just sort of sunny and beautiful all the time there aren't any seasons um which to me actually sounds pretty boring as a place <laughs> to be but um but yeah that was that was sort of the the ideal is this place where um with without extremes well, I don't know, after, after that description of, of England, I, I can see how they, they might use sunny, regular sunny days as paradise. Yes, possibly. <laughs> it, it, that that notion of 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 that uh, linkage to uh, you know the, the the environment, I think, also comes across when you're talking about the the notion of nature. As you mentioned, that's a word that they don't have. Instead, they have a word that that at least to uh, you know reading it today, you know, connects to. The, this notion of the supernatural in, the, in that you're not, it's not nature, it's creation. And I, 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 I that, that was one of those ones that just was really mind blowing to, to, to read that and think about it. Yeah. It, it's something that, I mean, it really struck me when I learned about it, when I was studying old English is that, that nature was there. There's not really a word for nature. Um, that the word yakind means is sometimes translated. Well, it's translated as nature, but it means more like human nature. Um, so that sort of nature, one's condition or kind, um, not nature as in wilderness or you know things that are not man-made. Um, yeah, and everything instead is described as yeshaft, which is creation. And it's interesting how how inclusive Yeshayeft is because it's not just all the good things. It's also things like, you know, dragons that burn down mead halls and, you know, good people or supposedly bad people, the monsters in the world, they're all part of, of Yeshayeft. Um, so they were all created by God for some reason. Um, and yeah, the, the distinction between things that were human made and um, and not was, is, I guess, seemingly not as important as it is today. The, the thing, though, that I was most struck by when I read that chapter was how you talk about how they don't have this word and they use a word that we do not use to describe nature today mm. and that how that nonetheless seems to be the outlier when you compare it to all the words that they had for animals that we still use in english today uh you know cat which seems to be internal as a word mm -hmm. you have hun you have uh uh sheo uh for sheep and and, and just you know and, and it's understandable in the sense because you know that that was such an important part of their world that they you know, were much more, they had all these details, but how all that has successfully survived on the present day, albeit, you know, in slightly modified forms. Yeah, the, the, the animal names are, I mean, there's, they're very easy to recognize as modern English speaker, um, like, cat, yeah, cat honed, as you said, um, there's horse and, you know, coo, very, very, uh, I guess, 
those words were just constantly used and they're they, I, they never needed modification there's so i mean are there some certain words that seem to have just stayed the same over for over a thousand years which i also some people find that a bit more boring that the words are the same like but i also think it's interesting to look at the words that have remained unchanged for so long and that says something about how our our concepts of these things have always been crucial to communicating well you you uh though had this nice just juxtaposition in the chapter as well where you then introduce the word scorpion which is a very different word in old english now mm. granted there are many scorpions in england but as you point out that's something that existed in the bible so it, they would have had a word for it but you also tie it to this word that it just seems to be such a broad uh broad used one broadly used one which is worm Mm. And you describe because that, that's one that that you still see you know evoked today in old English context, albeit in a, in a much more uh, niche or specialized uh, world of say you know uh, like uh, tabletop gaming or yeah uh, or, or people that that are invoking fantasy worlds the, the the conqueror worm and so forth. Yeah, yeah, a worm is one of those words that has, and and it's. In Old English, it's spelled W-Y-R-M, so worm. Uh, yeah, it's it's another one of those words that has, has kind of undergone semantic narrowing and that it used to be, um, it used to mean, you know, worm, dragon, snake, um, insect, parasite. It could be all of those things. And now you say worm, it generally means something like an earthworm, unless, as you say, you're in more of a, like a fantasy uh, world building context where um, it draws upon these sort of old idea of a, of a dragon or a, a worm. Um, yeah. Now, whereas their environment around them was something with which they, you know, had, were very familiar with and had to have a lot of language, a lot of words for, by contrast, as you explained, they didn't really travel a lot. And yet you do have plenty of words that they used for things. And they use this not just to talk about things such as the word for traveler, which is one that you point out we have a variation of even today. But you talk about things like uh, their, their words for, for, for hearts, their words for uh, travel. I, I, it's, it's fascinating how they would, how, how they, you know, how much of that survived as well. Because I was uh, so many of those words also like like the word for street. It, mm. I I had I was I hadn't really uh you know kind of made that connection about how that was in an old English word as opposed to like via or or mm. some of the older words that we get from uh, the Latin languages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that people sort of in in general think that in the Middle Ages people didn't travel very much, but and that was certainly the case for some people, but there were there was actually a lot of traveling going on. Um, you know, people tr there's evidence of of people traveling to, you know, the Middle East and going on pilgrimage, going to like places in Africa. There's um there's a lot more cultural exchange and and traveling in the Middle Ages than you might think. Um, and a lot of the words we get in Old English that are related to travel are related to traveling by by boat, um, as that was obviously the, the simplest way to get around, the fastest way to get around back then. But yeah, um, not I, I don't think that the, the idea that everyone was staying at home and never going anywhere was is quite uh, it gives us a good picture of the time you though also then talk about uh the the, the concept of the house and, and this is something that in some ways I, I thought was very familiar because you're describing the the, the way you, you, they they use those words was 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 as i was mentioning earlier kind of how, how i think about we use english today and I, I just loved some of the how you used words like for example uh, loaf house <laughs> and how you're saying that, you know, that, you know, could, uh, be, you know, a reference to bakery. And then of course my, my favorite one, because it, it's, it, it sounds like something that you would, you would, you would hear in, in, in a different podcast or see on a true life one, the, the notion of a murder house yeah. and, and, and how, and how that, how you tie that uh, directly to, uh, 
uh, Tolkien's uh, name for Mordor, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, Tolkien was um, was a like a renowned scholar of Old English, so he draws on a lot of Old English words in his his names for things. Um, so yeah, Mordor is one of those. Um, but uh, yeah, like there's there's some very poetic names for hell. There's you know Sizzlehof, which is sort of torment house, and uh, as you say, murder house. Um, but then there's some really lovely words for places, um, like, um, the Hlafus, I think you were saying was, you know, which I, I kind of made a joke about in that it sounds like it's a bakery, but it's actually, um, used to translate the word Bethlehem because that's the, um, the sort of where the etymology of Bethlehem comes from is that this house of bread, um, which you get in the direct Old English translation. But um, I think a lot of modern English speakers are possibly not as familiar with. Now, we've been alluding to this, which is how a lot of this language was oftentimes used to talk about elements that we would call nowadays the supernatural. And you then go on to talk in, in greater detail about this because it, it, as you make it clear i mean they live in a in a supernaturally infused world and i thought that was really fascinating when you talked about this notion of the elf and about how it was something that you you see the word you see a lot in their language but the way they use it is very different today you said about how if you go to a modern uh a library or bookstore and you look for books on elves you're going to look in the fantasy section or the mythology section and for them it was much more of a real world concept that they used mm. to explain things that were otherwise beyond their understanding yeah you see elves show up mostly in medical texts so leech books um where where it talks about you know Alf Adel or Alf Sayada uh, and various elf ailments and the it's it's hard to say whether like how much they sort of saw these different maladies as being actually caused by what we think of as an elf or whether this was a way of referring to a disease or or sickness that they just didn't really understand. And so saying that it was sort of caused by elves was a way of, of referring to that sort of like something sort of beyond comprehension. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's kind of difficult to parse out what that means. Um, but yeah, also strangely elf shows up a lot in people's names. So like one of, the names that we're really familiar with today that comes from Old English is Alfred, um, which means elf council. And it's quite puzzling, I think, that there are all of these positive names that come from elves, but and yet like all of the, the things that elves do in medical texts are making you sick. And so an interesting contradiction, I think. Yeah. And, and of course, it, it, elves are not the only ones that they refer to. You, you, you have in, in the glossary in, in the, at the end of the chapter, it, the, you, you mentioned as well uh, the 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 shell, If I get pronounced that correctly, uh, you have uh, you know the the shuka, and and, and you know all that the, the gifts. They, they were very clear that they, that they had to ha have names for beings because they they thought they were maybe not visible, but but very real. Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, there, there, there's. I mean, we we talk about creatures as well. That um, you know, whether or not we believe they're real or not, but like the, the sort of in the concept of hell, there were lots of 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 demons and sort of evil creatures and fiends, and so yeah, there were names for these various various things, um, although. Interestingly, not really a, a word overall for monster the way we have today. Um, there are a lot of names for specific types of things that we might describe as monsters, but not a word monster that sort of encompasses them all. Where you, I thought you did one of the most 
interesting uh, jobs in terms of using language to understand the mentality of the times was in your chapter on uh, religion. And, and here I thought you really, it was really fascinating to see how the word construction can be used to understand how they perceive things. I'm thinking, for example, about how you have this notion of uh, wealth and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and fortune and how uh, you have, for example, uh, you know, descriptions of, uh, 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 the, the word notion, the, the way they use the word eager, which is not a word that I would necessarily associate with it. I mean, the, the closest I, I might come to is, 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 is greed, mm -hmm. but you, you talk about how they construct all these concepts around this. So you have uh, knowledge eager, peace eager, sin eager, and, and, and how this helps us to better understand the way that they perceived elements of, 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 of sin and, 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 uh, it, and, 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 you know, w and how they warned against it. Yeah, I guess, uh, having, yeah, I, we do sort of think of, of, of greed and eagerness sort of together a lot, but yeah, it's, it could, if it depends on what you're eager for and for sort of what reasons, like, um, like Beowulf is described as, as love yearn, which is, um, like eager for love or eager for praise, um, which might sound rather negative to us today. I think if we're thinking of someone who just, you know, wants to be praised, that that's rather a self-centered person that that isn't a, a great example. But uh, Beowulf, for Beowulf, it's perceived as being a good thing. Like he he cares about. Uh, like doing deeds that will make him sort of live on past his death and that will, you know, doing great, great things. Um, and you often get that sort of feeling that in Beowulf as well, like it's okay to boast as long as you are boasting um, sort of with good reason. Like it's okay to say, I am the best dragon killer if you go and prove that but it's not okay to to just say that you're the best at something and not prove it but it again it's sort of it contrasts that sort of um I, I i guess what to say a bit of a, a pre-christian value that they're trying to um work out with in, in the context of a, a, a christian society because um i think christianity is generally promoting more humility but um, at the same time, in this culture, you have these heroes that are 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 not humble, and it's part of it. It is trying to reckon how th these two things can exist together. Um, I I think is a really interesting thing to trace in in old English poetry. One of the we, we've we talked about how. Uh, we've referenced how the language evolved because of the words we've added to you. You talked about how we've been building ever since then. And, and yet what we're described, what, what you just, what we described at that point is not something that began after we had old English, that it's something that was happening even during the era of old English. And, and I was, and I, it, it, it wasn't until I got, I got to the end of the, your book when I was reading about your, uh, your, your, your examination of the word amen, where I picked up on that, because you're just there, you're, you're talking about how when it comes to religion, which for the old English had a very uh, specifically Christian connotation, they were, there were a lot of words out there for them to inherit or to adopt and and how they did indeed uh, uh, adopt some words, but they also use their own to, uh, to, to express uh, these, these Christian concepts, which were such a vital part of their lives. Yeah, definitely. I mean, words like, um, like weird, um, with W Y R D, um, which is where we get the word weird, um, which maybe is more familiar in the context of like the weird sisters. So these kind of otherworldly, um, strange beings, but weird in old English meant, um, sort of fate or the way things happen um, was kind of what it meant. And that concept existed, you know, in pagan times, but it could be transferred over into 
a Christian context and thinking about um, destiny and sort of, you know, God's plan and how things happen. Um, which is it's interesting how that word um, continues to be around even even it survives even in a, a Christian context. Well, we've been talking a lot about Old English, and, and and for some people, Old English might seem to be as uh, as distant and abstract as talking about, say, classical Greek or or, or Latin. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, you explain a bit as to what is the, the the benefit of studying Old English for us today. I mean, is it is it really so remote that it, it, it it's its relevance is only distant, or, or or does it offer a lot? to help us better understand our own language and our own world today. Yeah, I mean, I would say that as as someone who's a native English speaker, learning about old English has really taught me a lot about about my language in a way that, you know, studying a um like a sort of ancient language that is from another culture would not um you see so many things that are that are similar that have survived and and it makes you realize that these there's certain concepts have sort of stretched over you know a thousand years um but it also helps you see how ideas about different things have changed like you know na- like nature for instance how that has changed or I- idea of um you know even things like bread and you know how our word for bread is has has survived but it's it used to mean food i mean all of these things tell us a lot about history as well as as about language and it it gives us a glimpse of how people lived like a thousand years ago um but there's also we also have this connection to them because some of because many of the words are familiar to us still we appreciate the time that you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. I'm actually working on a second book now, um, which is, um, the title is, is not, uh, I don't, I don't have the title for sure yet, but it is going to be about animals in old English. And I'm focusing more on, um, on various animal words and the, the stories that come in about animals. So yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book, and I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Thank you. Hannah, uh, Nadine, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.